0: You certainly don't have to become a power lifter or put on a ton of size or anything like that um, to be doing high-quality strength work that pairs with your sport and your training. That is certainly not what I would recommend and certainly not what I think endurance athletes should be doing of, of any level. But in strength training, you have an opportunity. And granted, we have you know limited time during the week and, and some people have limited resources, but... If you're executing a strength training program properly, you should be learning and informing yourself of how to move well.
1: Welcome to the Common Threads. During each episode, we'll travel through time to explore the childhoods, influences, and habits of some of the world's leading athletes, industry experts, and entrepreneurs. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts or your favorite listening app, and visit ProKit, where we bring together the best interviews, podcasts, and articles in a new platform for athletes. I'm your host, David Swain. Awesome. So we are here with Dr. Matt Smith, the founder of EverAthlete in Palo Alto, California. We are remote. I am not in Palo Alto, unfortunately. Um, there is smoke and pandemic still. And uh, so, so Matt is... Um, uh, really a specialist in all things health and performance. He has been the attending physician for Ironman World Championships in Kona for the North Face Endurance Challenge, which is is an epic ultra-running challenge across my hometown in Marin. He has—well, it's actually all over the place, Um, so we'll have to see which ones you worked at. So um, he's trained— and helped athletes get to the biggest events in the world from Western States, the ultra endurance run and the Tahoe 200 to countless Ironmans, the mountain bike world championships, CrossFit games, the U S national weightlifting championships, which I think the reason I brought all of those up is it's, it's rare to find somebody who's helped athletes from so many different disciplines and sports, um, And I'm really excited to dive into kind of what he's learned across, kind of across that spectrum and the learnings that you can take from one sport and apply to another. So Matt, welcome to the show.
0: (laughs) Thanks, man. I'm stoked to be here.
1: All right. And uh, if you've listened to my past shows, you know that I start with a big daunting hard question, which is what did you have for breakfast this morning?
0: I... Certainly came informed, uh, knew that question was coming. <laughs> and so this morning, actually, every morning, for the most part, I, I have a breakfast shake. And this morning, I threw some kale and broccoli, blueberries, and a bunch of other good stuff um, into the blender and blended it up. But that's what I'm having.
1: So what else goes in there? I need to know the details.
0: Okay, so generally, I... We do, we do a veggie box every month, yeah. and so it, it kind of varies from month to month, but usually it's the majority of what I put in there. are It's either spinach, kale, chard. I usually throw broccoli in. Sometimes I'll throw some carrots in, but try and just get as many vegetables in as possible. Today I also put in a, an apple, a handful of blueberries, a scoop of the Primal Kitchen uh, collagen protein and i'm allergic to dairy so i i always go with either almond or or coconut milk today it was almond milk and that's pretty much it
1: what about ice
0: i don't put ice in usually no i use well we freeze our kale and our blueberries um and so usually that's that's cold enough for me
1: all right on the dairy side so this is interesting cuz i i don't know if i'm allergic to dairy but i've always i always get a slight upset stomach so i probably am At least mildly. Sounds like Good signal. And, I mean, protein sources is a big topic. Like, there's obviously a big discussion around making sure, especially athletes and aging athletes, get enough protein. So, protein source for someone who can't have whey protein, what's your typical go-to on that?
0: Uh, I'm usually eating meat. Meat, nuts, seeds, that's generally what, what I'm taking in. Um, occasionally I will have some whey. So I'm not as sensitive for some reason. I'm not as sensitive to a clean whey isolate protein, um, as I am to like drinking milk or taking in cheese. Okay. And so sometimes I'll have some whey protein, but for the most part, I take my protein in through, you know, actual consumption of chicken and fish and, and beef.
1: All right. Very good. So why don't we start with a little bit just on your journey as an athlete and into, into kind of the, the health side of things and starting ever athlete. Where did it all begin?
0: Uh, yeah, it all, it all began. Well, I grew up in the Bay area, um, and grew up playing baseball and football, um, through high school and, uh, eventually decided to, to go to college to play football. Um, and prior to my freshman season, tore my hamstring and had a a bunch of different injuries occur. And so while I was at school, I tried to come back from injuries, kind of fell out of football um, and fell out of organized sports. Um, And so, you know, after uh, I actually decided to come back, so I went to University of Redlands for for college for two years and then came back. And uh, after I came back, you know, throughout my time in high school and college, I was I was pretty set on becoming a chiropractor. I always wanted to become a chiropractor, uh, mainly because I had a, a mentor in high school who was our anatomy physiology teacher, who was this huge bodybuilder um, and was formerly a chiropractor, and he had a pretty substantial impact on me, and and uh, so I, I always wanted to kind of follow in his footsteps. I saw his life as. You know, something that, that certainly appealed to me and something that I was interested in. And, and so kind of from the get go was pursuing uh, a career in conservative healthcare, but didn't really know all the details of how I wanted that to, to shape up. And so um, came back from, from Redlands and uh, immediately was working towards getting into Palmer West, which is a local uh, chiropractic college that has a, a really good sports chiropractic program. And so, you know, while I was finishing prerequisites, I started to get into and got exposed to CrossFit. And so, pretty early on, I think I was like 19 years old um, when I started playing around with CrossFit, competing in CrossFit, and and coaching CrossFit. And um, right when I started coaching CrossFit, it kind of clicked in my mind of like one of the pieces of the puzzle uh, became clear that. The element of having a community that revolves around health and fitness uh, was an essential part to kind of the story of healthcare in my mind. So going beyond just doing, you know, one-on-one hands-on care, whether it's chiropractic, massage therapy, physical therapy, uh, there was an element of importance to to having that community that revolved around those health principles, um, and so. As I was going through the doctorate program at Palmer West, I continued coaching. So, you know, from CrossFit, I kind of uh, got exposed to a lot of different things in strength and conditioning and started to really dive deep into a lot of the the figureheads who I've grown to respect tremendously, like Mike Boyle, Gray Cook, Gary Gray, uh, Mark Verstegen, there's a, there's a wide variety of guys that, that I started to get exposed to. And and so from there, you know, while I was going through Palmer West um, was also working in different strength and conditioning environments um, and kind of got exposed to the corporate world as well, started doing some work on site at, at a few different companies. Um, and so throughout that time, you know, I was training a lot and also coaching a lot um, and, and kind of figuring out what my identity would be, uh, once I finished uh, my work at, at Palmer West. And so what became clear was that what I wanted to do was uh, develop a community that was based around health and fitness and combine that with conservative health care. So some blend of of hands-on care with corrective exercise and rehab, um, and then furthermore dive into what I think is is true maintenance and holistic care, which is Movement and strength and conditioning, and so. Um, once Can I you finished, define
1: um, conservative healthcare? I think you kind of just did, but just so that people who don't know what don't know what it is.
0: Conservative healthcare, in my mind, is non-surgical methods to maintaining the health of the body and the overall movement system. Um, and so, just speaking strictly from a, a movement perspective, and not really getting into the nutritional aspect of things. I think you know my place in the in the health and wellness industry is certainly uh, non-surgical care and holistic methods to maintaining the health and performance of the human body.
1: All right, well said. We we all want the health and performance of our of our body, so that is that's yeah. an important role.
0: <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely, um, and, and one that you know I've has has kind of evolved in my mind over time. Once I finished. At Palmer West, I ended up moving out to, to Austin, Texas and working in a sports therapy clinic out there that was inside of uh, the gym that was owned by Todd Wright, who's the strength and conditioning coach for the Los Angeles Clippers right now, but at the time was with University of Texas. And, and so got a, a lot of exposure to a high level performance environment out there and spent about a year and a half out there and then came back to start Ever Athlete. And Ever Athlete began as a strictly a, a sports therapy clinic. So just working on, you know, conservative care for athletes and active people and got the chance to work inside of a CrossFit gym here, kind of my, my home base at the time, and then ventured out into, you know, having a clinic in downtown Palo Alto. Um, and then beyond that, uh, a couple of years down the line, started our actual performance training center. Which we actually just closed down due to COVID, but that was kind of the the beginning and the execution of of actually combining uh, consistent strength and conditioning for active people um, with holistic and conservative healthcare through you know passive modalities like soft tissue therapy, um, corrective exercises and stretching and all of that, and so kind of combining the two worlds. Um, was, was the eventual goal of Ever Athlete and what we were really diving into. Um, and that's that's pretty much how we got to where we are right now.
1: And how many years has Ever how many years has the Ever Athlete journey
0: been? So Ever Athlete, this is year six. Okay. Yeah. So the for the first two we were it was pretty much just me doing you know hands on therapy and, and corrective strategies for athletes. Um, and then really the last like three to three and a half have been more into the the kind of uh, strength conditioning side of things from a structured perspective.
1: And that's how I found you. So I was um, I'd interviewed Kate Courtney for anyone who hasn't listened to that episode or if you don't know who she is, she won the 2018 mountain bike world championships and uh, and last year won the overall world championship and and Kate and Matt have posted some epic videos just teaser reels of, of what goes into strength and mobility for a world champion. And I was like, okay, I gotta figure out figure out what your what your secret sauce is that you're telling the everyday athlete like me and then the pros like Kate. So um <laughs> Yeah. It's I'm sure what's the journey been like? So um, you know, I guess it, for me it's there's so many parts to cover of what you just went into and you know for pro kit for for our site like we've got the experts and the pros and and then the everyday athlete that's just looking to to learn um and, and kind of hit their physical and mental potential so i guess what's the right way to start so on b- between you know the one thing for me is like the journey to strength. Why is it important? Mobility. Like if you're, you know, as maybe as a starting point of like giving people a little bit of education and perspective on you're the average endurance athlete, you've got seven days in a week, limited amount of time. Most people typically prioritize their sport, like running or cycling over the strength and Um, mobility and stretching work that goes into the longevity and I guess make a little bit of a case for kind of the whole athlete and how you think about things
0: yeah I think from a an everyday athlete perspective so if you're a recreational athlete or on the higher the higher end of uh, performance of a recreational athlete um, especially from the endurance community there's there's a lot to be said about the place that, that strength uh, and, and strength training can play in the longevity of an athlete. And so particularly for, you know, master's athletes, getting connected to strength training, I think, is one of the easiest ways that you can bring your body back to balance and build some resilience The trickiest thing with endurance athletics is how repetitive they are. So there's a lot of repetitive stress that goes into being a cyclist or uh, an open water swimmer or um, a long distance runner. You've got a lot of reps doing the same thing over and over and over. And so from a strength training perspective, if you're executing a good strength program and, you know, we'll talk a little bit about what that actually means, but, if you're doing one to three days of strength work, I mean, it doesn't have to be powerlifting, right? I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions is that you, know, you have to start doing powerlifts in order to be doing strength training for your sport, which is not necessarily true. Um, but if you're executing a good strength training program as an endurance athlete, a lot of your mobility work, if you're executing movements correctly, is built into the strength training. And so the idea behind uh, building your body through strength training is essentially to build balance back into the body, um, take you out of some of the asymmetries um, that can be built through doing repetitive exercise over and over and over. Um, And so bringing some symmetry back into the body um, and, and building resilience to the connective tissue of the body as well as just your overall strength to take pressure off of your joints is essential to, to longevity as an athlete. And it doesn't have to, you know, you, don't, you certainly don't have to become a power lifter or put on a ton of size or anything like that um, to be doing high-quality strength work that pairs with your sport and your training. Um, and so I think getting beyond this idea that you're going through like a bodybuilding training program or powerlifting training program That is certainly not what I would recommend and certainly not what I think endurance athletes should be doing of of any level. But in strength training, you have an opportunity. And granted, we have limited time during the week and, and some people have limited resources. But if you're executing a strength training program properly, you should be learning and informing yourself of how to move well. Um, And and so once you can understand that and once you have the kinesthetic awareness and the ability and skill set to move well, you can start loading those patterns and loading those patterns can start to build some of those those some of the strength within the body to to continue to go longer and stronger as an athlete.
1: When people come in and, you know, they've you know, we could talk on the the elite pro level. Maybe you're coming in with an injury or an overuse injury, and, or you're, you know, there's some of the, and I think we've, we caught up um, a few weeks ago and you were talking about how you've really helped um, a lot of like groups with big goals go get ready for like a mat, like a big epic multi day hike or something like that. Like, um, where do you start and where would you recommend, you know, for maybe for people who don't have, Direct access to someone like you. How do you put together that program? Where do you look? Like what? What are the basics of like? Yeah, the almost that get started
0: guide. Yeah, I think that's a tough question to answer. <laughs> <But> <laughs> I think uh, so. What you're referring to, or so the premise of our of our training center. So when we when we had our gym, the whole premise of the gym was to have people training together in a functional fitness format so you know going through structured exercise together but with the purpose of going out and doing awesome things so every quarter we would plan an adventure trip and we would spend 10 to 12 weeks training for that adventure trip so we would you know in our few years as as a gym we went out to the grand canyon hiked through the grand canyon Um, we went out to yosemite hiked clouds rest we did trips out to Big Sur for paddling and trail running, went to San Luis Obispo. We, we went a lot of different places and trained for a lot of different environments. And each training cycle was a little bit different. So I think the most important thing for people to, to grasp initially is that you know, your plan is going to be different based on what your goal is. So if you have a specific goal that you're training for, if you're looking to do a 100-mile endurance race, the way that you build strength into your routine is going to be fairly different than if you're doing a 5k or you're rowing or you're paddling or you're a cyclist. Um, Those will be two fairly different uh, training pathways, I would say. But as far as kind of the, the general format that I like to start all of the people that I work with, and granted, I don't work with all of the athletes on their strength and conditioning programs. Some people I'm doing sports therapy with some people, you know, I'm doing you know, passive care and mobility work. Um, but from a, a strength and conditioning perspective, training for endurance events, the initial phase of pretty much every training program that I write up will start out with, if I'm doing individual work with someone, we'll do a, a very detailed assessment on how they move. And what their movement capabilities are Um, and then that'll be our foundation for addressing weaknesses in that chain or you know building on their strengths and kind of formulating a plan that will try and do both those things at the same time but if you're not going through a full assessment process or you're doing it in a group format the initial phase that i'll set up for for any training program is a stability phase so we're working through core strength stability work, and really getting connected to shapes. So the foundation and the way that I kind of think about movement, which has been informed by a lot of people that are much smarter than me is to categorize movement. Um, And so, you know, there are hinge patterns, which, you know, power cleans, deadlifts, broad jumps are essentially kind of in the same category, but have different demands and then there's squat and lunge patterns. There's pushing and pulling patterns. There's rotational patterns. So that's kind of how I'll, I'll start. That's the framework from which I'll work. And our first phase of our training program is essentially understanding how to stabilize and create those movements. So can you connect your brain to your body to create those movements, and can you control them? And so we spend you know at least a couple of weeks, depending on you know the time frame for our event. Um, Ideally, we're spending two to four weeks in a stability environment where we're connecting to movement patterns, building up movement control and mobility, and then our second phase is diving into strength, so actually starting to load those patterns, but I don't start loading people in a pattern that they can't execute well, and so ideally in our first, you know, in the first phase of training, we're we're executing bodyweight movements core stability patterns and all that. And then we start to load. Um, and then the last phase debatably going to be power. So it's not always the last phase, but, uh, generally speaking, we'll start building into more powerful movements, um, and rep schemes will change and all that. But usually, and I think the most pertinent and important thing, especially for endurance athletes is the foundation of your strength training program should be teaching yourself and really learning how to create shapes can you create shapes with your body uh, that are kind of the standards of how to prevent joint injuries um, and prevent overuse injuries overall? Um, And if you can't do that, then you need to start looking for ways to work through that and and improve those patterns. But you shouldn't necessarily be loading those, which I think one of the biggest downfalls with not only endurance athletes, but a a lot of people who are doing a lot of functional training are loading patterns that they have no business doing. And what I mean by that is, if you can't do a hinge pattern, right? So if you can't flex through your hips and flex through your knees while keeping a neutral spine, so no movement through the low back, you can't do that with no weight and you have no strength endurance in that pattern, then you probably shouldn't be doing heavy deadlifts. And particularly for for people that, you know, masters athletes have, most likely been sitting quite a bit in their life and you know our our brain if we're not using certain movement patterns it becomes disconnected to them and we kind of lose our ability to actually create those shapes and those movements and so one of the biggest things for masters athletes i would say most importantly would be to to spend some time reconnecting to those patterns executing them well and then focusing on load
1: it's really interesting i was going to talk about this later but on kind of the direction of the overall fitness industry and you know in some ways it checks the box boxes that you were talking about of a community coming together like this is pre-covid but you know the the crossfit gyms the yoga studios have definitely moved and at least here some of them more towards like the hit style yoga <laughs> like very fast intense very crowded classes you know from from my perspective like very little focus on form. I'm not commenting on the CrossFit stuff because I haven't done that. It's more of like, do you think with how things are progressing and now there's, you know, we've got people at home, um, out of necessity and you're watching on Peloton or, you know, you're doing your crazy FTP power test on Zwift. (laughs) Um, and you know, there's, there's not a lot of teaching on form that I've seen and, it's going to keep you in, in good business. <laughs> so yeah. I mean, what's, what's your perspective on that? Cause like, I mean, I our goal with ProKit is to get people out moving, doing it well, of course, but like the fact that people are exercising is amazing. Um, but are there gaps on form and how can they be, how can they be fixed?
0: Yeah. For the record. So I, I, CrossFit was kind of my entry point into strength and conditioning, and actually it was super, super powerful and beneficial for me. But I've kind of evolved from there, and no longer am doing CrossFit training. Not to say anything negative about CrossFit, but um, have kind of, I think, evolved from that that jumping-off point and and gotten pretty heavy into other forms of training and and some other structures of training. So. Certainly saying nothing negative about CrossFit, but, but definitely like ever athlete um, was, was quite a bit different than walking into your everyday CrossFit gym. Uh, but to, to kind of get back to your question about where the momentum of the fitness industry is heading right now, where we have all these boutique gyms that are really focused on, I think in a lot of ways, disconnecting from your body and getting really caught up in the, and you know, they're capitalizing on the community factor and having a lot of people in a room training really, really hard. Um, but you know, if you walk into like X hit training gym, right, there's probably the lights are going to be low. There's going to be neon lights going all over the place. There's super loud music playing. And it's really like the whole intent is to create this massive emotional experience but not necessarily connect you to your actual body and (laughs) the way that you move, Um, which I think in terms of longevity is not sustainable. And I think that it it can actually really take away from uh, what the purpose of training should be in your life. And so I am a a very firm believer in purpose-driven training, having goals, so setting goals, training relative to those goals and not someone else's um, and having a structured and informed approach to training for those goals. And so if you look at, and this is trickled down from elite, elite athletes, right. One of the hardest things about, or I think one of the issues that's needed to be addressed from like a perspective of CrossFit and high intensity training is a lot of the people that are training in those ways are not really having an off season. And are not really periodizing, they're, they're kind of working towards this linear progression of performance, which doesn't necessarily correlate with long-term health and certainly not long-term joint health. And so the question that I've kind of been playing with over the last few years is, are we expediting chronic injuries and a downfall in athleticism? by not properly setting people up with training programs that will periodize and back them off of, you know, redlining all the time. And so as we dive more into, you know, with Whoop and all these different companies that are um, really designed to to give you more of a perspective and data on your stress levels, um, as we start to get more data and perspective on stress levels, we should certainly start to extrapolate that into, you know, the way that we train. And the way that we address training and the way that we actually organize our lives around training and sport and fun and rest and recovery. Um, And so I think what's most important for people and what's really trickled down from elite level athletes is understanding that you you need to design or have someone else design your training in a way that trains you to peak for a specific thing that you want to do. And that could be anything. But then after that, you have a rest period or some sort of off-season or some sort of off period um, where you're actually letting your body down regulate from that high stress. And if you're not doing that, and we you know there's countless athletes who have run into issues with that, but you're just you're gonna run into chronic injury, chronic fatigue, an inability to control stress. And overall, the implications of that could be pretty heavy, you know. I mean, I work with people a lot who are dealing with with repetitive stress injuries or chronic pain. And the mental and emotional health implications of not maintaining your body and being able to do the things that you love doing, are they are extreme. And so one of my... One of the questions that's kind of come about from the work that I've done and the work that so many different health professionals are doing is to address that. So how do we create longevity, not only to life, but to high performance? And I think that the answer is, is having a structured approach to you know, the training that you do and the fun that you have. Um, and, and a lot of that starts with intention. Um, And once you define your intent, then you can start to structure your approach towards executing on that intent, um, no matter what kind of training you're doing. But it helps to inform the guidance that you have. So whether you're hiring a coach or you're looking for an online program or what have you. um, But I think, you know, one of the trickiest things has been the explosion of information that we have about training and the, you know, the frantic... um, (laughs) there's <laughs> just so much. There are so many videos. This is actually why we stopped putting out, you know, when COVID hit, I started putting out videos like EA th- the EA30 workouts, which are 30-minute workouts that you could do at home. Uh, we put out Ride Strong with Kate Courtney. We did a bunch of different things that were like these singular events, but weren't necessarily part of a bigger program. And I hit this point kind of midway through where I was like, oh, my God, I'm actually... I'm doing the thing that I have been telling people not to do <laughs> for a, a long time. And so we kind of backed off that and have um, reorganized the structured approach to providing training for people at home that's as far more periodized and fits into the bigger picture of performance, which I think is is really, really important for people to sift through and understand, um, especially if you're athletically minded and you have goals you can't just be choosing whatever workout you saw on Instagram today uh, as your your training plan. It's just it's not a sustainable thing. And I so am guilty of that. <laughs> <laughs> which, honestly, I think everyone is. I think every you you see something, you're like, I, I wonder if I could do that, you know, or that looks cool. Like I just saw a world champion do this. Yep. But the reality is what Kate and I were putting out is right. That unfair. might be eight
1: weeks into a very specific, <laughs> but,
0: yeah. yeah. And, and also certainly not the meat and potatoes of what she's doing. It's, yeah, right. it's a piece of it. Right. Um,
1: can so, we talk yeah. a little bit, I mean, this is, a, it's, it is so hard to answer cause it's, it is individual, but the, the purpose driven training goal setting and then building structure kind of around that. I mean, I'll just use myself as an example. This fall, I was supposed to be at two big cycling events, you know, that would have over the summer given me, I would have been doing all sort like a whole plan map to those two events. I can probably speak for many people. Like I'm kind of like in this like main maintenance mode (laughs) of like overall health. Um, Like if I was going to try to, you know, I'm swimming, biking, and running, not with any goal other than just staying healthy right now. Um, And, I would love to, I mean, how do, what sort of process do you walk, do you work on with your athletes to, to define that purpose? And then, and go through that, I would say another, like putting the structure to it. Like once you define the purpose and you go through that exercise, like the next big step of, of mapping out what that means in practice is, is also a big leap. So kind of walk us through a little bit of your process or what you've seen work for different people.
0: This is also a hard question to answer because, because it's been such a moving target. Yes. <laughs> um, since the beginning of COVID. You know, we've had, there have been races that have seemed like they might happen and then they were canceled and then some online version of that race is going to happen. It's, it's you know, there's just, there's a lot of uncertainty. Um, and so.
1: Right. You're peaking for an imaginary event that might never happen or might happen on yeah it's yeah for the elite athlete especially
0: oh my gosh well i think from a professional athlete perspective if your season has been canceled you still have the opportunity and actually more of an opportunity to go through full cycles of periodized training so you you have an opportunity to to really dive into performance in a way that you haven't so take cycling for example um, the mountain biking world cup that whole schedule has been totally thrown off but it's allowed for certain athletes to get extra cycles of training in and see how they peak through those cycles um, in a way that has that that opportunity has never been provided before because you know you're mid-season usually if you're in season you're you're not going through a peak cycle you're, you're doing strength maintenance or performance maintenance and just trying to get ready for each competition. Um, but I think it, I've worked with so many different people during this time ranging from you know collegiate athletes to you know professional athletes and, and also you see this is this is so different for every person because the choice of races is is, is there's a, a ton of diversity in that. But I think if you're a recreational athlete who's just, you know, you had a race planned, it got canceled, you're trying to figure out what to do, my recommendation has been um, either choose a follow-up date and then you can structure your plan towards that or just do what you like doing. So keep doing what you like doing. Um, generally speaking, <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll depending on who I've been working with, uh, we're going through 12-week cycles the same way that we would be for an off season training program. So we just kind of like revisit an off season training program. And that's, that's essentially how I've worked through Have you it. you found
1: that 12 weeks is a good for, you know, for anything like a, just like the, the right period of time to commit to a structure and a goal, um, to get the right results and also kind of maintain focus mentally.
0: Not necessarily. Yeah. For, for me, it's been like eight to 12 Okay. Anywhere, And it could even be shorter than that, but it, it depends. So like off-season, certainly getting like an 8 to 12-week off-season cycle in, um, particularly like some of the more strength-based athletes that I'm working with, getting 8 to 12 solid weeks of mini strength cycles uh, has been really, really helpful um, because it actually allows for recovery time between uh, separate bouts of, of building. And so it, it, to, it totally depends. It's, it's very dependent on the sport, the goal, and the time frame. And we didn't
1: cover this at the beginning, but give us a little bit of a snapshot with COVID of this time last year, what you were doing, and, and now. Like, how has it changed?
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's changed quite a bit. Uh, last year, we had just moved into... A brand, actually, in December, we had moved into a brand new facility in Mountain View, and it was, you know, kind of the dream facility. I'd been envisioning this place for like ten years. I'd just been thinking about what this facility would be like, and it finally kind of happened. So it was this awesome training space where we had a, a, a large strength and conditioning area. We had more of a recovery, yoga, mobility area. We had a clinic inside. Um, we also had an outdoor training space with like a sauna, ice baths, the whole thing. Um, and so that's what we were planning on and executing on last year. And it was kind of this, this new chapter in Ever Athlete and really the next phase. And when COVID hit in March, that all changed. Um, and I've really shifted my focus. So when we first signed our lease in Mountain View, Um, one of the contingencies of the lease that I had my landlord put in was if the city ever interfered with our business for any reason, which if you're out there and you own a gym or if you're signing a lease for anything, this this has been a life-saving clause. Uh, But so if the city of Mountain View or the County of Santa Clara ever interfered with our business for any reason, we could buy out of our lease um, for a certain amount of money. And so when COVID hit in March, I had a couple conversations with some family friends who uh, were very informed on the infectious disease side of things and made a strong recommendation to me that I should rethink my business model and, and what <laughs> I, I would be doing for the foreseeable future. And so immediately, actually, like the like week one of COVID, I contacted my landlord. I was like, hey, I'm buying out of my lease. And so we voluntarily got out of the lease and have shifted our focus to to doing things virtually. So the goal for me back in March was how can we shift as many of the things that we were doing in person to a virtual format, which we've done through everathleteperformance.com. And we're starting to launch um, different programs um, and video series for athletes uh, for different sports and also for for our GPP, General Fitness, uh, program. And then we're also doing in-person therapy up in our clinic in downtown Palo Alto. But, you know, prior to COVID hitting, we had our our gym space. We had a clinic in Palo Alto. You know, we've done on-site wellness therapy for a company in downtown Palo Alto for the last five years um, where I was their on-site provider. And that changed. So pretty much everything about my day-to-day for the most part <laughs> has changed. And now the focus is how do we make, you know, performance and training and health concepts accessible online, um, as well as doing some, some in-person work. And so it's been an interesting shift, certainly. Uh, I mean, it's been super challenging, really, really hard uh, to, to make that shift. But one that, that I've become more and more excited about and actually have, for the first time in like six years, have had some time to to actually um, think creatively, which is something that I've really loved. Like if you're on a mission and you have a business structure in place and you're trying to support that and continue to progress it, you're confined to that. And COVID has kind of provided this new opportunity to rethink the way that things are delivered and executed. And and so in many ways, it's been uh, reinvigorating for me even though things are are certainly different than, than what they were last year.
1: On the community side, so with people moving online and that being a big part of your kind of initial kind of philosophy and goal, have you seen, this is on the creative thinking side, like have you seen things happen or have you had ideas where you're able to maintain some of that kind of real world connection that's connected to health goals? or is it still in the mode of kind of one-on-one?
0: The community side of things has been the trickiest, has certainly been the trickiest component of everything. Um, and so originally we had started doing live classes online, thinking that that would stimulate, you know, connection between us and the people that we were working with. And throughout COVID, because it's been such a fluctuating situation and the rules have changed constantly about what you can and can't do and what's available in terms of like actually getting together, um, in a group. And so anyhow, the, the community side of things we have not solved yet. We're, we're, I'm, I'm constantly, uh, that's been my obsession of like trying to figure out how that's all going to work. Um, uh, but one of the things that we've begun to launch are with one of the companies that we work with, we're, we're launching some 5k races. Um, and we're going to start doing some virtual events. Um, and we've also shifted our format or at least will be in October to, to an online training platform where people can actually communicate with each other and log their results and all these different things. And so I think that that will be really helpful. Uh, but we'll, what will be most helpful is when we can actually, uh, all get together again and do a race or, you know, Train together that that is when things will be will be awesome um, but until then we're you know continually reaching out to people checking in with with the people that we're close to and that that's really been I think the most effective thing for that I've seen is, is just personally connecting with people that that you have in your circle over the last six months
1: awesome I'm going to ask some pretty generic questions but just things that I think I don't. many people wonder about, um, and they're, I'm sure hard to answer and concise. <laughs> they're, they're probably hard, but, um, you mentioned something at the beginning about like how if you do strength, right, it can mix mobility in and it kind of becomes both. But like when people think about strength, mobility, and then the stretching yoga, like what's your opinion on yoga and where it fits in?
0: I think yoga helps a lot of people like if you're going to yoga classes, you're going to a, a generalized form of movement, right? So it's, it's not necessarily prescribed to you. So yoga is not universally good for everyone. It's good for some people. It's not good for others. So say you have a, a labrum tear in your left hip. There are going to be a lot of things that you'll still be able to do in yoga, but there's going to be a lot of things within a yoga class, that you, depending on what yoga class you're in, That are certainly not going to be good for your hip and same thing with if you have a lower back issue or if you have a rotator cuff tear there's a lot of stuff in yoga that's certainly not going to be good for you for general movement and mobility like kate does a lot of yoga Um, this has been a discussion that we've had over the last few years since we've been working together and she loves she loves yoga and it's a way for her to get some movement and mobility in and I certainly have no issue with that. Is it the most efficient way to execute on movement and mobility? Maybe, maybe not. Um, I think if you're going into you know individualized care, individualized training for someone, there are going to be certain things that will be really high bang for your buck that you'll find in yoga poses. There will be other things that are a little bit more extraneous. Um, but as far as like a structured approach to movement that is generally really helpful for people and also combines, you know, active stretching with breath work, I think that it's, it's actually a pretty good structured program, but certainly, uh, it depends on the person that's doing the yoga.
1: Okay. Warming up and cooling down before a big workout for a ride or run. Do I think it's important? Yeah, and what do you, you know, this, it's like, you, you still see and like, are you supposed to stretch or are you not supposed to stretch? Do you, like, what is active stretch? Like, what are, there's, like, some common things that I think still there's misnomers about, or at least, um, you know.
0: Yeah, I, I think with the, the mounting degree of conflicting evidence in strength and conditioning, the best thing to do is to explore and experiment with yourself. But generally speaking, from my perspective, a warm-up is, is optimal. Uh getting a good warm-up in prior to whatever task you're doing um, is good for a lot of different reasons. What you should be doing within that warm-up, generally speaking, I take people through some dynamic stretching, some core activation, neurological prepping um, for the task that we're about to do, uh, which will be different based on, you know what kind of training you're doing that day. Um, but yeah, I certainly think that priming the body, um, getting blood flow into your tissue and getting your neuromuscular system turned on in a way that's informed towards the movement that you're going to be executing that day, whether it's under load or you know, a high-skill environment or sport-driven, I think is very important. It also, you know, your warm-up informs you about the state of your body as well so it's an opportunity for you to get information about about what could potentially go wrong in your training that day um, and so I I personally think that warm-ups are essential as far as cooldowns go I also think that cooldowns are extremely important not only from like a, a tissue health perspective but more so for a stress control perspective like we live very stressful lives If you don't take time, we live stressful lives and training is a stressor. So we're working in sympathetic tone and we're ramping up our sympathetic nervous system while training. And if we don't actually downregulate that, the mounting effects over time of not being able to bring yourself back into a parasympathetic state, whether you're using breath work, stretching, a little bit of foam rolling, or a combination of those things, um, you're really missing, I think, a big piece of being able to control your nervous system and furthermore, being able to recover fast.
1: On breath work, are there techniques and um, I don't know, things that you focus on? I think I almost have two questions, like one is to to get yourself into that relaxed state you know, maybe after a ride or throughout the day when you are stressed from exercise or work or whatever's going on in your life, um, to actually breath work during performance.
0: Yeah. And it, there's a ton of pretty interesting research being done and has been done on breath and performance, CO2 tolerance, oxygen delivery to tissues. Um, are you asking for my take on whether people should be doing breath work? or some form of it.
1: Yeah. I think a little bit of both, like what's your, where do you think it fits in? And then are there, you know, whether it's the latest research or what you see people doing, um, are there techniques or that you would point people to, or point people to, to start the research on?
0: Yeah. I think, you know, just like I said with, you know, the mounting, (laughs) (laughs) the, the mounting research in the performance world and how, Conflicting it can be. Self exploration is far and away the best thing that you can do. Um, as far as breath work goes, I've just kind of gotten into this world in the last couple of years and have been studying up on it a lot. I've been, you know, learning from a lot of different people and different resources. Um, what I've found, you know, I kind of started with Wim Hof, uh, which I think is a lot of people's entry point into breath work especially in silicon valley where everybody's psyched on wim hof and intermittent fasting and the whole deal i think that that is awesome exposure to the power that breath can have over you physiologically it's been repeatedly shown that breath work can have a substantial impact on the regulation of your nervous system which is extremely important for sports. So if you're an endurance athlete, being able to control yourself, control your physiological state, control your nervous system, um, is very valuable, not to mention the optimization of your usage usage of oxygen. So when you breathe in air, that doesn't necessarily mean that you are properly, uh, getting oxygen to your tissues. And so, Breathwork is a way, and there are specific forms of breathwork where you can actually start to build that up and build your efficiency in terms of the air that you bring in, equating to good oxygenation of your tissues. There's a lot of research being done on nasal breathing, and there's a huge spectrum of you know, ways that you can implement breathwork into training. One of the easiest ways to start, and, and I think you know, I could go in a lot of different directions here. There's a huge focus on down regulation breath work which is basically using breath work to get yourself into a more mellow and parasympathetic state and stimulate more recovery I think that that is probably the uh, the best place to start for really anyone because of how stressed we are all the time um, there's a lot of resources on that but doing you know as simple as five minutes before you go to bed of, six seconds in six seconds out or thinking about you know throughout the day trying to breathe through your nose as much as possible um, has been has been well researched to be uh, a huge parasympathetic stimulus and then the third thing would be breathing out a little bit longer than you breathe in uh, Is another way that you can just kind of dip your toes into the water breath work Uh, and then if you want to go into like the shift adapt uh, variation of Things, which is a company that's put out a lot of interesting stuff on breath work. You know, there's the Buteco Clinic, which has also done a ton of really, really great research out in the UK. There's a book called The Oxygen Advantage. Um, there's also another book that just came out uh, called Breathe. It was by the author. His name, first name's James. I can't remember his last name right now, but he wrote a book called Deep. Um, which is, that is an awesome book on free diving and the physiological effects of being in water. Um, but he, he went on, I haven't read the book yet, but Breathe is his book on um, exploratory breath work and really diving into um, the world of, of breath work and breath performance. Um, so there, I mean, (laughs) there's a long winded answer to your question.
1: I mean, you, the way you started it too, is always interesting to me about there's so much research, especially in this space. And it's always like, you know, the longer you get into this industry and the more you work with athletes and you see what works and doesn't work, like how much do you trust the research? Where do you, how do you figure it out as a professional in the space you know where have your assumptions maybe been changed the yeah. longer you've been in it
0: oh absolutely and i think i certainly don't think that my methods are the end-all be-all of performance I, i've tried to adapt the way that i do things in a way that's informed by successes and failures and the ways that I've answered your questions you know, during this interview could certainly change in the next year. It could change in the next two hours. You know, there's, there's a lot that goes into it. Um, and, and it's this balance of looking at the research, um, looking at the vast amount of things that you can do from a performance perspective, there are endless things, whether it's breath work or nutrition or training or recovery, you know, these are infinite worlds of options. And so trying and failing and exploring and finding out what works best and continually refining and evolving that I think is by far the most important thing. Like there, there are no finite answers in the world of performance or, or I think really human health. And I think continually being open to learning more and continually searching for you know a, a refined way of doing things is by far the the best approach to health and wellness and, and performance overall
1: on nutrition i mean, i want to go into all of these different topics i mean we could talk about it from a performance perspective or from an overall health perspective i don't know which you you know like when you're starting to work with somebody how much do you focus on their nutrition and And how much of an effect do you see it having?
0: Historically, I haven't done a ton of nutrition consulting. I've mainly focused on movement. And if my role's, you know, doing more physio and and corrective work, I'm on that. If someone's looking for nutritional guidance, which like if I'm working with a more elite person, my first recommendation is don't, don't look for nutrition advice from me necessarily. Look for the Top-end professional in the nutrition world, um, and you know different athletes will use different people. But if I'm working with someone who's you know, recreational and is just looking for simple things to to start jump-starting or improving their their performance from a nutrition standpoint, I think cleaning up your diet is so simple, and and so it's painfully simple in terms of like eliminating processed foods for the most part, eliminating sugar, um, minimizing alcohol, uh, eating a variation, a high variation of organic fruits and vegetables um, and and getting enough protein, I think is is huge as well. And so, you know, I I come at it from a very uh, kind of basic standpoint and try and simplify it as much as possible and, and leave it up to the people that are much, much smarter than me uh to to really handle the more uh the more particular details.
1: What's the big um the big difference you see in how the pro athletes you're working with approach their goals and their training compared to the recreational, other than time <laughs> that they have. I mean it's like it's a little bit of like what do they bring to it? And this is a little bit of a question too that I've always thought about is How much of their success is is genetic versus the way that they approach kind of the entire mind-body practice of their sport?
0: I think from an endurance perspective, there's a certain amount of genetic uh, play there, but, I mean, you have to put in the work. And I think the the thing that differentiates – elite level athletes uh, from, you know, recreational athletes is certainly there's a genetic component, component. um, But I also think defining goals and actually refining approach, sticking to a plan and continually refining that process and always looking for ways to improve that process. That is that's, that's what happens on the professional side of things.
1: Um, it's funny. Yeah. I mean, it's no different in the business world. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. I and mean, yeah. yeah, right. There's the parallels across life are extreme. So yeah. What about, this is a totally, this is a selfish question because it's one where I have <laughs> stronger <laughs> opinions. So sports specialization and youth and you know, you've you you've talked about you coached, you know, division one athletes, um, how many of those division one athletes were specialized as at 13 years old versus playing multiple sports or, uh, you know, longevity and health of the men, physical, mental health of the athlete. Like, where do you see youth sports right now? Um, and are we focused on the right things?
0: Yeah, that's a, that is a good question. The Division One athletes that I've worked with, a lot of them did specialize pretty early on. So, like, uh, I've worked with a lot of swimmers, and swimmers tend to choose swimming very early, and you know, become dedicated to that really early on. Um, my personal point of view uh, is that specialization early on has been reflected in a lot of research to lead to um, early onset, repetitive stress injuries. Now it's such a tough question to answer. I think with my kids, I'm going to try to get them playing as many sports as possible um, and keep that going for as long as possible, not only from a performance perspective, but also from, you know, when I fell out of football, my identity, I just went through a tremendous identity crisis. And, and when I fell out of kind of your traditional American sports, like the big three of basketball, football, baseball, I didn't even know. I really didn't know about other sports and didn't have the confidence or the mental ability to try those things. And it was like, because I, I chose my sports early on in life and really stuck to those sports and didn't dive into other things like the the personal growth that i've had from playing a ton of different sports learning new skill sets um and and just being a novice in different areas of of athleticism and sport over the last 10 years has been so beneficial for me that that's exactly what i would want my kids to to do and then you know if if there's a sport that loves them and they love it back then you know, diving into, you know, higher performance in that sport uh, is certainly a, a path that we could take. But I think exposure to the different athletic endeavors is really important uh, for, for kids so that they have options. Um, and, and also, you know, the motor control and just the general athleticism that's developed by a variation in activities is I think very important physically, but also cognitively Um, and, you know, just giving kids options so that, you know, when they stop playing X sport at 21 years old or 14 years old or 16 years old, they know that they have other options so that they can be a lifelong athlete and they can, you know, (laughs) there's a really small percentage that make it to the next level, whether it's division one or professional um, or collegiate or professional, I should say, um, and, and for those that don't make it, you've got to have, you have to have other options.
1: All right. Last question, um, on managing burnout. So this is not just for, you know, the youth athlete side, but it, it applies in work. It applies to the athletes you coach. Like you, you mentioned how everyone is too busy, <laughs> too stressed, um, in whatever they're doing right now. So, um, what have you seen? You know some of these elite athletes who are so f- hyper focused. Um, what approaches do they employ to, to kind of get through it with their heads on straight?
0: That's very variable. I think constantly checking in to make sure that you really enjoy what you're doing is a very important thing. Whether you're an elite level athlete or, you know, you are a recreational athlete, I, I think really having a connection to what brings you joy, and what brings you fuels your passion, is is a pivotal piece to to avoiding burnout. Now, there's going to be uncomfortable bouts of the journey towards your goals, regardless of what they are. You know, the, there's certainly going to be trial, error, challenges, failures. That's all part of the deal. Um, but within those, you have to continually check in to make sure that that. You are doing what you want to do now beyond that. I think sports psychologists being able to downregulate. So like what we were talking about with cooling down after a workout or a training session, being able to control and downregulate your nervous system and building in frequent times where you check in with your nervous system and your overall, uh, state of stress, you can do that. You know, there's so many different ways to do that now, but I think that of, aside from technology and data points, Having time where you're doing some breath work and only focusing on your body is extremely powerful for checking in on those things of you know stress levels, what brings you joy, do you love what you're doing, are you actually going in the direction that you want to go, whether you're in business or you're an athlete, I think, or both, I think that that's a really important piece to the burnout story. And then beyond that, having a team around you that keeps you accountable and is actually looking out for, you know, (laughs) I think downward trajectory of your mental or emotional state or your physical state um, is very important as well. Um, And then also, you know, getting into the more data-driven side of things with, you know, things like Whoop or, you know, recovery recovery state with Garmin and all these different tools that we can use to know. What our heart rate is and what our SpO2 is and all these different things um, give us, they inform us of the physiological state that we have um, that we might not know consciously. Um, And so being aware of those things is, all of those things, I think is a part of um, continually checking in with yourself um, and and, uh, and long-term avoiding burnout.
1: Right, is Whoop what you use? Like, you know, I, this is an area where I'm still definitely learning. I mean, I've every once in a while I go into Apple Health and check out my heart rate variability <laughs> to see mm-hmm. where it's been going. Um, and but yeah, I mean, to be honest, like I haven't I haven't gone
0: deep here. So, so I currently this won't be a popular take with yeah. some of the people around me, but I <laughs> currently don't use Whoop. Um, I'm waiting on my WHOOP. I'm, I'm waiting to get my WHOOP, and I'm actually pretty excited <laughs> to use it. But uh, right now I have a Garmin uh, that I don't take the, the data that it gives me as an exact standpoint of where I am, but I'll use it for heart rate variability. I also will use a test on my own called the CO2 tolerance test, which is basically a breath test where you can, it's, it's testing how, well you handle a, an environment of high co2 um, and so it's a simple breath test that you can do on your own and you know your ability to to deal with a high co2 environment and your tolerance to co2 overall is indicative of your state of stress your ability to train really hard there's a lot of different things that you can pull from that test um, and it doesn't really require anything other than a stopwatch. Um, so that's something that I'll do often, um, and that's that's really what I'm using. I, I do use my Garmin. I do look at, like, my sleep schedule and all that. Uh, but generally speaking, I have a pretty structured approach to, like, sleep and breath work. And so those two things inform me a lot about how my stress level has been and, you know, my overall I think biostatistics and frankly, like throughout COVID it's, it, there've been times where it's been bad. I just have not been on point. And so I think there's a whole nother element of like, if you're keeping track of those things, not getting too lost in the data and kind of, you know, allowing yourself to get into a state of maybe not quite as rested. And anyways, there's a, there's a, I've. uh, No, this is good. Thought through that a lot. Yeah. So, um,
1: All right. So the closing thoughts, if we all want to be as fast as Kate Courtney, (laughs) we need to work really hard. We need to have a team around us. We need to have structure and goals. We need to pay attention to our recovery and our mind. Yep. What else? When she walks into the gym, what's the difference?
0: (laughs) Well, so to to be clear about the the relationship that I have with Kate and kind of to give you guys a window into why she is so elite and such a champion is you know i've worked with her since she was an amateur and my role with her has evolved quite a bit so currently uh, you know she has a full team around her ranging from strength coach to physio to another physical therapist that she works with to a massage therapist like there's a there. There's, There is someone for every bucket. Um, And one thing that I have enjoyed seeing so much from her is as she's progressed as an athlete, she's continually looked to refine those processes as well as the people that are on her team. She and I in the last year, the role that I've kind of taken on with her is less like I'll do. I, I certainly do some hands on work with her. But really, for the last year, as she was, you know, leading up to the, her, her overall championship, um, we were doing movement refinement. So we were going into the gym, we were working together and making sure that she was honed in on all of her strength exercises. So, you know, from standpoint, like we've talked a lot about strength today, not all strength movements are created equal. And if I had 47 people in here doing a squat pattern or a deadlift pattern, we probably have 47 different examples of what a, what a squat or a deadlift would be, and some of them would be good, some of them would be bad. So you know, for her, we have, uh, we've taken the standpoint, she's taken the standpoint that her strength and conditioning program is truly an injury prevention program as well as a performance enhancement program. And we've really dialed in the details uh, to make sure that her movement patterns are really good um, and she's continually refining those movement patterns and executing on a championship level. Um, and so that's right, that. that
1: growth mindset of constantly learning.
0: Oh yeah and like, and honestly, that's I think from an endurance athlete perspective is pretty challenging because a lot of endurance athletes are not driven through a system like a you know your basketball or football athlete who are a part of programs where, You know, they have an entire athletic training staff around them. They have PTs, chiros, massage therapists, coaches, you know, there's, there's a system for them. Right.
1: Yeah. It sounds extravagant when you describe like how an endurance athlete has those things until you think about the fact that in any other organized sport, (laughs) all professional athletes would have those people.
0: Oh yeah. And it's built in. There's no effort involved.
1: They don't even have to put the pieces together. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And so that's that's the big thing about Kate is her continual strive to get help <laughs> and to get coaching right. and to have assistance and and to trust, you know, build a team that she trusts uh, and, and continue to refine her process.
1: That's great. OK, so where can uh, people find you
0: right now? You can find me uh, at everathleteperformance.com and at everathlete on Instagram. All right. Pretty much it.
1: Very good. And, and hopefully we will, uh, we will have some special Dr. Matt yes, Smith and on secret Kit. magic on on ProKit Pro in the future. <laughs> that is the, uh, yeah, oh. we'll see where we can, we'll see where the magic can happen.
0: I'm stoked. No, I'm, I'm actually, <laughs> I've been working through the program. We're going to be launching some stuff on ProKit hopefully really soon. And so um, you can certainly uh, you can certainly catch some strength content on there.
1: All right. Um, thank you very much. And I know you surf, so maybe someday we'll get in the water together.
0: Dude, anytime. I would love that. I can that. tie
1: a rope to the back of your board and you can tow me out <laughs> at Ocean
0: Beach. <laughs> we both might die, but uh, that All sounds right. great, man. Thanks for having me on.
1: Very good. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Common Threads. If you liked the show, please tell your friends and followers on social media and encourage them to tune in. You can also leave a rating or review to help new listeners discover the show on Apple Podcasts or whatever service you're listening on. Or send me feedback directly on Twitter at David underscore Swain. And Then head over to join our new platform for athletes at theprokit.com.